Good morning. It's a joy to be with you on this first Sunday of Advent. And if you've got a Bible, let me ask you to find Luke 1. We'll be looking at selected verse there as we look at the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth together. This morning we are starting a short series that will take us through the four Sundays of Advent. And we're calling this series, All is Calm, Even When Not All is Bright. You may recognize that phrasing as belonging partially to our favorite Christmas carol, Silent Night. And, and we sing, all is calm, all is bright. But I wonder if, if that often matches our reality. Do you feel cheery and merry when Christmas comes, or do you feel weary and harried? There is the, the advent that marks the coming arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is also another kind of Advent that marks the arrival of something else entirely. It marks the arrival of unwelcome feelings like doubt and fear and shame and loneliness. While these feelings seem to be very out of place in an Advent celebration, they are nonetheless present. They are like unannounced guests who stay longer than they are welcome. They devour our joy and eat away our hope. They drain our energy and empty our patience. But we're not the only ones who've experienced these feelings. The participants of that first Christmas also experienced these same feelings. They were not immune. In fact, some of them felt them very acutely. This morning we are looking at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This couple, they were faithful to the Lord, yet they struggled with doubt. They struggled to understand why their lifelong desire to have children was never fulfilled. Why had God withheld this blessing from them? And then when God's answer finally came, it, it seemed too late because of their advanced age. They must have wondered, God, what are you doing? We certainly wonder that sometimes, don't we? God, what are you doing? How does God handle our doubts? What does Jesus' birth mean for those of us who doubt? For that, let's look at our text together. I'll read from Luke 1, verses 11 through 14, or through 15, and then 18 through 25. And there appeared to him, that is, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth." For he will be great before the Lord. And then skipping down to 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're looking to you to to help us enter into not only the doubt of Sarah or of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but to enter into our own doubt to enter into the places where we wonder what you are doing. Would you show us yourself through this sermon, through this time together? We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, some of you know that before I came to Rivermont, I was an unsuccessful church planter in Missouri. Now, I say unsuccessful because we actually had to close the church plant after just three short years. We really were totally unprepared for this as we had sunk everything into this church plan. I mean, we had gone all in. For us, leaving Missouri really did feel like a death. The death of a vision that we believe that God had given us and called us to join in with Him. The death of a church family that we had actually grown to love and care for. We even experienced the death of my dad just a few short weeks after we closed the church plant. And during those months following that closing, we were filled with doubt. We were constantly asking God, what on earth are you doing, God? Why would you lead us here only to move us away three years later? There was so much more we wanted to do. There were so many more relationships we wanted to cultivate. So many more lives that we wanted to see transformed by the gospel. What on earth are you doing, God? Have you ever asked that question? Asked one way, that question can actually call God's wisdom and His judgment into question, can it? God, what on earth are you doing? It's actually... Less a question and I think more an accusation. It's an indictment of God's character, His wisdom, His power, even His love. God, why would you bring me here? Why wouldn't you bring this into my life? Why wouldn't you take this away? Why wouldn't you fulfill my desire? Can you hear the accusatory tone in those questions? You see, these questions reveal a host of unmet expectations. They reveal a fundamental belief that God failed to act as He should have acted. He failed to do for us what was reasonable and even righteous on our behalf. And there were times that I definitely felt that way. That's not the only way that question can get asked. The other way we can ask that question doesn't call God's wisdom into question, it actually calls on God for His wisdom. God, what on earth are you doing? There's nothing accusatory about this question. It's an honest question that's meant to understand God's ways better. Lord, what's happening in heaven that I can't really see here on earth? 
What purposes do you have in my affliction that I can not only learn from, but can help others learn from? And there were definitely times that I felt like that too. As you experience doubt in your own life, how do you ask that question? Do you call God's wisdom and judgment into question? Do you accuse Him of failing to meet your expectations or even your demands? Or do you call on God's wisdom to understand His ways? Do you recognize that often what God is doing in heaven may take longer to be revealed here on earth? When we wrestle with doubt, I think there are often two underlying beliefs that are fueling their doubt. They're not the only ones, but they seem to be really strong sources that fuel our doubt. The first belief that fuels our doubt is that we doubt our own goodness. We tend to think that whatever is happening to us or, or has continued to happen to us is a result of our own actions or even our own sin. We're the one to blame. We're at fault. I call this the too true to be good mindset. Where do we see that in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth? Well, first of all, what do we know about this couple? Well, Luke tells us that Zechariah was a priest and Elizabeth came from a priest's family. In fact, both of them came from the priestly line of Aaron. So they experienced a double blessing. They had a deep walk with the Lord that was manifested in a lifetime of service and ministry together. They were pillars of their little rural community outside of Jerusalem. And as a couple, they would have walked the walk and they would have talked the talk. They're the kind of couple that you would have loved to have sat under their teaching, under their life, to to be mentored by. That was this couple. And yet, despite their love for the Lord, despite their love for one another, despite their love even for their community, there was a lifelong ache in their hearts. It was an unrequited love of sorts. Luke says in verse 7, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here was a man and a woman who loved the Lord, who desired to have children. They had faithfully prayed for God to fulfill their desires, but He hadn't. They had poured open their hearts, petitioning the Lord for a child, but the answer seemed not to come. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see how they would have experienced this as a lifelong disappointment. To experience what so many mothers in their community had experienced. To have all of those maternal instincts satisfied as Elizabeth would have cared for a child, her child. What she wouldn't have given to have experienced morning sickness, knowing that it would meant the promise of a child, but, but now this was all a distant memory to her. Her womb had long been closed as she was advanced in age. I well remember the five years of infertility that Denise and I experienced before finally having Jackson. I remember many things about that period in our life, the many trips to the fertility doctor, many trips to the medical labs. There are other things. But I think what I remember most is this fear that I might be the cause of our infertility. Knowing how bad we wanted to have children, what if my body was the culprit? What if I was the reason for our infertility? Of course, I didn't want Denise to be the reason either. 
But I didn't want to live with the guilt and shame of knowing that I was to blame. Elizabeth had carried that guilt and shame of barrenness her whole married life. And if that weren't enough, barrenness in the ancient Hebrew culture was seen as a sign of disgrace or even judgment. Elizabeth would have heard the gossip and the rumors from some of her neighbors and the community. What must it have been like to serve in a community where people looked at you and suspected that you were the blame for your own barrenness? That God was somehow against you because of that barrenness? That there was some kind of sin that God was judging you for? This was a double blow. To not only bear the weight of her infertility, but to bear the weight of their insensitivity. Surely the weight of those things caused her faith to buckle. She couldn't always hold off this nagging sense that it was her fault. Maybe they're right. Maybe God is against me. Maybe my sin is the reason I can't get pregnant. My life is too true to be good. I wonder if there are some of you here this morning that are wondering the same thing. That your life is too true to be good. I know some of you carry around the grief of infertility for reasons known only to God you have been unable to conceive. And while you may have been spared from judgmental comments that hasn't kept prying questions and insensitive remarks from well-meaning people away, the unfulfilled desire of having a child has left you wondering if God is indeed somehow punishing you, that it is somehow He is somehow against you. Some of you may carry around the grief of not being married, despite your desire to experience the love and intimacy given and received in marriage. You remain single. You long to enjoy the gift of marriage, yet you wonder if you'll be given the gift of singleness, a gift that you just as soon return than keep. Your unfulfilled desire has you wondering if God is somehow punishing you, if He is somehow against you. I remember preaching my final sermon at our church plant. I remember preaching that that God is sovereign over our lives and the life of this church plant. And because He is sovereign, He accomplished everything He set out for us to do, even if it felt like there was so much more that we wanted to do. I believe that. But there was a part of me that didn't fully believe that. All I could think about were the mistakes that I had made. All the things I didn't do and should have done. In fact, the weeks following our closing, I started compiling a list of all the mistakes I had made, both in what I did and what I didn't do. And in making that list, it just confirmed what I felt deep in my soul, that it was my fault. I was the one to blame. If only I had done this, if only I had done that, then God would have blessed our church plant and we would have grown. My life seemed too true to be good. It's hard to shake a too true to be good mindset, isn't it? It's so easy to assume that the suffering or affliction that we're experiencing has to do with us, that it's our fault or maybe it's our sin. But that's not necessarily the case. Yes, sometimes our affliction is a result of the destructive consequences of our sin or even others' sin. Yet many more times our suffering is not related at all 
to our sin. In fact, it is related to God's glory. In the case of Elizabeth, we see that her barrenness was in fact for God's glory. God wasn't punishing her for her barrenness, but planning a miracle that would lead many to salvation. You see, to display God's glory and the glory of this child, the specialness of this child, it it required him to be born from a barren womb. Phil Riken states, Elizabeth was suffering because of the way God wanted to be glorified through her life. How does God want to be glorified in your life? It is very likely that He may use your struggle and affliction to do just that. To reveal His power and glory in a way that is unmistakable. The question I believe God would have us ask is, how can I glorify God through my suffering? Through my affliction? How can I testify to God's power and wisdom and might in my affliction. But we don't just struggle with a too true to be good mindset. We can also struggle with a too good to be true mindset. This mindset is different in that instead of doubting our goodness, we doubt God's goodness. We struggle to believe in God's goodness in light of our own experience. Zechariah was one of thousands of priests that served Israel. Following the Babylonian exile, all the priests were grouped into 24 divisions. And each division would serve in the temple two weeks out of the year. One of the special opportunities a priest might have would be to offer incense on the altar in the holy place. Priests were chosen by lot to perform this daily ritual. However, once you served in that ritual, you could never serve again. For years, Zechariah had been passed over for this privilege. The lot had gone to others. Perhaps he wondered if he would ever be chosen. And then it happened. This time, the lot fell on him. Now, little did he know that God had chosen this particular time for a special purpose. This special once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to deliver to Zechariah some life-changing news. As he entered the holy place for the first time, he would have seen all the furniture of that special place. He would have seen the lampstand on one side. He would have seen the table of the showbread on the other. Then before him, he would have seen the golden horned altar of incense. And it stood right in front of the Holy of Holies. Surely he would have taken a mental picture of that moment to be able to share with Elizabeth when he had returned home. Yet no sooner had he taken that mental picture that the angel Gabriel appeared suddenly right before him in blinding light. And as happens to most people who encounter angels, Zechariah was troubled and terrified. The radiant appearance of an angel was terrifying enough. We know that because the first words out of an angel's mouth is usually, don't be afraid. But I think Zechariah was also terrified about why the angel was there in the first place. You see, the last time Gabriel had appeared to anybody was when he came to Daniel some 500 years earlier. You may remember that he had been sent to tell Daniel that your prayers for your people have been answered. Deliverance is coming. I will deliver. We also know that these angelic messengers, like Gabriel, 
also delivered birth announcements to major figures in the Bible like Isaac and Samson. Turns out that Gabriel had come to do both. To tell Zechariah that his prayers had been answered and that Elizabeth was going to have a son named John. It's not clear whether Zechariah had still been praying for a child even after all these years or if the angel was referring simply to their past prayers. But what is clear is God is now ready to answer their prayer. Gabriel tells him that John's not only going to bring you and Elizabeth joy and gladness, but many in Israel will rejoice at his birth. He'll not only be a blessing to you and Elizabeth, he'll be a blessing to the people. They will celebrate the day that he was born. And he goes on to tell Zechariah that John will have a ministry like no other. The angel says, beginning in verse 16, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, that is the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord's people prepared. Now I'm guessing in Zechariah's mind, the angel could have simply stopped at He will bring you and Elizabeth great joy and gladness. That might have been just enough. That would have been the answer to their prayer. But to hear that their son would be the forerunner of the long-awaited Messiah seemed too good to be true. And actually, it all seemed too good to be true. You can hear the doubt in Zechariah's response in verse 18. How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. Notice that he didn't say she's an old woman. That he's advanced in years. Now, this is a nice way, a polite way of saying, do you really expect me to believe that an old man like me and an old woman like my wife can get pregnant? How can this possibly happen? Zachariah is no doctor, but he knows that this is medically impossible. There are no amount of fertility drugs or procedures that can reverse this process of aging. No, this this news is just too good to be true. When it came down to it, Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel because he really didn't believe God. After all, this wasn't exactly a daily occurrence. Miracles like this were few and far between. Of course, it's not like he didn't want it to be true. I think even in their old age, they would have welcomed a child, yet... The struggle to believe God's goodness was overshadowed by human reality. It was overshadowed by natural law and time. It just wasn't possible. You and I often live under a similar shadow. You see, the Bible is laden with promises that offer to meet our deepest needs. Yet we struggle to believe these promises because they seem too good to be true. They feel as spiritually impossible as Elizabeth's pregnancy was medically impossible. We hear the promise of rest from Jesus to His ministry companions in Matthew 11. Come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And we struggle to believe that we can truly find rest. That we in our frenetic lives can know rest. We have sought rest in so many areas of our life, but they have always come up short. Jesus, how can you really give me the rest that my soul needs? 
it seems too good to be true. Or there's the promise of satisfaction from Jesus given to the woman at the well in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Advertisers tap into our longing for satisfaction. Especially at this time of year, they bombard us with promises of satisfaction from their products. And we are hardly satisfied with the product until a newer version of that product comes out a month later. And all of a sudden, we are not satisfied any longer. Our capacity for deep satisfaction is so shallow that we wonder if Jesus can really deliver on His promise of satisfaction. It seems too good to be true. Or there's the promise of peace from the Apostle Paul to anxious people like us in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, so much of our life feels out of control, doesn't it? We like to think that we have control over our health or our job or our kids, but we know better. And this feeling of being out of control contributes a lot to our anxiety and worry. Is it possible that through our prayers that we can know peace? A peace that will guard and protect our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? It seems too good to be true. Do you find yourself struggling to believe in God's goodness? Are you laboring under the weight of doubt that says God's promises are just too good to be true? That He can't possibly fulfill His promises to you? Thankfully, God knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows the doubts that lurk inside of there. The doubts that seek to minimize God's goodness and undermine our faith. What's more, He does not intend to leave us in our doubt. He desires to create a whole new mindset in our hearts. One that will give us the faith to believe in all of God's promises. I call this the too good not to be true mindset. Gabriel gives Zechariah a sign so that he will know that God's promises are too good not to be true. We read in verse 20 that Gabriel renders Zechariah mute. Because of his unbelief. He tells them that he will be unable to speak again until Elizabeth gives birth. And one can only imagine the conversation that he and Elizabeth had when he got home after finishing his week at the temple. I don't know if he was using charades or if he was writing things down on the wall. But somehow he communicated the good news of Gabriel's announcement to Elizabeth. And as Gabriel had promised... Some short time later, Elizabeth's body experienced a maternal bloom and she conceived. There could be no explanation other than God did this. This news was too good not to be true. She declares in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She's saying, God has done what I could not do on my own in order to take away the reproach of my barrenness. Friends, this declaration gets not just at the heart of the gospel, but at the heart of Christmas. 
God has done something for us, something that we could not do on our own, that He might take away the reproach of our sin. Not only our reproach before God, but even our reproach before man. God took on flesh, leaving glory and divesting Himself of it to enter our world as a baby. A baby like every other baby, and yet a baby like no other baby. And as the God-man, He did not shield Himself from the brokenness of this world, but He willingly embraced it and entered into it. He did that so that He could not only identify with our struggles, but that He could remedy our struggle. Yet the only remedy that would remove the reproach of our sin meant His death. And so Jesus, who knew no sin, bore the full weight of our sin upon the cross. And He died for us so that through His resurrection, we might be in Him, that we might be with Him. This is the too good not to be true news of the gospel. If you find yourself in a place of struggle and doubt this morning, if you find yourself asking, God, what on earth are you doing? See the extraordinary love He has shown you by sending Jesus Christ to take away the reproach of your sin and mine. See the lengths to which He has gone to make you His child. See the truth that God is working in you to reveal to you and to the world His glory and His power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth that the Gospel is too good not to be true. Thank You for Jesus who was the answer to our prayer. The answer to take away the reproach of our sin and that You gave Him willingly for us. Such love we cannot fathom. And Lord, we pray that that love might change our hearts and that it might change the doubts that we have, that you might build us up in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.